We're going to be continuing looking in Romans chapter 10 today and, and looking at that righteousness that God gives. And going to be reading from Romans 10, verse 1 to 13, and you can stay seated as we read from God's Word. It says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, thank you for your declaration. Thank you that this is truth that we can count on, truth we can base our lives on. There is salvation, there is hope, there is righteousness that can be gained by faith in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. What do you want most for your kids, for your grandkids? Maybe you want them to be good people. You want them, especially if they're of age, you kind of like them to have a job, probably. <laughs> You'd like them to have uh, enough to be able to get a place of their own. You'd like them to be happy. You'd like them to be maybe making a contribution to, to helping others out. I think of somebody who, who thought his, his parents should be pleased because he was a good person. He was working hard. He had a good work ethic, all these things, and his parents seemed to be a little disappointed, frustrated. It wasn't until he came to faith in Christ that he realized what concerned his parents. Sometimes we can think, well, as long as they're good people and they're working hard, they're doing all this, everything's fine. But this guy's parents, they wanted more than just that. They wanted him to be right with God. What we want most is that they're in a right relationship with the Lord. In a way, we look at this, these verses of Paul writing, and he's kind of almost like a parent thinking about his children. He's thinking about his people, the Israelites, and his great heart desire for them is that they'd be right with God. They were good moral people. They were doing a lot of good things, but he has this frustration, this disappointment, because they didn't know the Lord. Many think they can be justified on their own. 
Many think they can just get in a right relationship with God all on their own. That was the people Paul was writing to. They were following rules, they were working hard, and they thought, well, we're just going to earn our salvation. We are unable to truly keep God's law. Some do better than others. A lot of these Jews that Paul's writing about, they did better than a lot of other people. And Paul himself, before he came to Christ, he did better than most anybody. Martin Luther, as we think about with the Reformation, he did really well in keeping the law too. But no one can keep it perfectly. And if you're trying for righteousness by the law, then you've got to keep it perfectly. You've got to do everything right. Don't do anything wrong. Because in the Bible, in James chapter 2, verse 10, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. No matter how many points you've done, even if it's just one point, you're still, you're a lawbreaker. He says, no, perfection means total obedience. Because God is a perfect, holy God. And he can't have sin in his presence at all. In Galatians 5 and verse 3, he says, Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. He's saying if you're going to choose this route, and you're going to choose by by circumcision and making sacrifices and following the rules, if you're going to choose that route and say, I'm getting right right with God by that route, not by faith, he says, then you've got to keep the whole thing. If you go down that path, then that's what you've got to do to get right with God. And, And none of us can do it. Because as it says in Romans 3, it says there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short to the glory of God. We all fall short. Some fall really short. Some fall maybe not quite as short, but it's all fallen short in the eyes of the holy God. We've talked before about the desire there isn't made to have in some places in country have the display of the Ten Commandments up. And that's good, but in some ways, when there's a display of the Ten Commandments up, it maybe should come with a warning. (laughs) It should come with a warning saying, this is not a to-do list. Don't look at these and say, okay, I got that. (laughs) Don't go look at the Ten Commandments and say, oh, yeah, I can do that. I'm doing pretty well at that. No, instead, the Ten Commandments ought to be looked at with an understanding, I have broken them. And I can't keep them. And there's problems, and the Ten Commandments are there giving a warning that you're not right with God and you're in need of forgiveness. And that's the declaration of the law is that we have a problem and we fall short. Because we can't establish our own righteousness. He says about the Israelites, he says, they don't know the righteousness of God and they sought to establish their own. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. They were unwilling to to come and say, well, I need the righteousness of God. They were thinking they could create their own righteousness. They say, no, you can't create your own. You can't make yourself righteous. In Galatians 2 and verse 21, he says, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is an if, but he's he's saying if, but it can't happen. (laughs) There isn't a righteousness that could be gained through the law, and that's why Christ died. If Christ did not go to the cross just to provide an option, 
He didn't go to the cross just because, well, some people can't gain righteousness on their own. So for those who are weak, those who fail to keep the law, this is an option for them. No, he's not just providing an option. He went to the cross because nobody could be righteous on their own. He went to the cross because nobody had hope apart from his sacrifice on the cross. As Galatians 3 and verse 21 says, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. He's saying if we could keep the law in such a way that you can get eternal life that way, then that's what would have happened. But this is another if that can't come true. There isn't a law that can impart life. Our problem isn't that we got poor instruction. We haven't heard the right to-do list. No, we have good to-do lists. The problem is we can't do them. We can't keep them. We can't fulfill them. In Romans 3, verse 10, as he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's nobody that can do it all right all the time. Paul, as we said, he did better than many, but yet he admitted, he said, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. He didn't have a righteousness of his own. We don't either. We like do-it-yourself projects because a do-it-yourself project, you can get a little sense of pride. You do it yourself around the house or something else, and afterwards you can say, yeah, I did it. I didn't have to go call somebody to help me out. I I did it myself. And we like to watch videos or go get instruction and and watch the YouTube video that says how you can do it yourself. And then we think, okay, I watched the video, now I can do it myself. Well, getting right with God isn't a do-it-yourself project. And yet many are thinking it is. Many are thinking, well, if I just watch the right video, it'll show me how I can be righteous on my own and I don't need faith in God. I don't need forgiveness. I can just do it myself. No, there isn't a video out there. There isn't a book out there. There isn't something that can tell you how you can do it yourself. No, we need Christ. We can't do it on our own, but we depend on him. Luther, he realized as a young man, he realized he couldn't do it himself. But at first, that just led him to despair. Because he recognized he couldn't keep the law perfectly. He tried. He tried to follow all the rules, did everything that the church was telling him you're supposed to do, and he still knew he wasn't at peace with God. But then he came to peace when he saw that it's by faith. It's by faith in Jesus. We don't trust in our own goodness or our own works, but we trust in what Christ has done because Christ satisfied the demands of the law. He says here in Romans, Christ is the end of the law. It doesn't mean the law no longer applies or that we ignore it, but he's saying it's the end of the law being in judgment over us. It's the end of the law scaring us. It's the end of the law saying we are separated from God and we have no hope. It's the end of the law saying you've got to do more, you've got to do more. It's the end of of that because Christ has fulfilled the law. He kept the law perfectly. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
He did everything he was supposed to do. He did all the good, and he avoided all the bad. He kept the law in all its parts. He fulfilled it, and, and now we rejoice in what he has done. He did what we couldn't do, and he did it for us. In Romans 8, in verse 3, it says, For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did, by sending his own son to be a sin offering. The law, really meaning us, we, we were powerless to do this. But Christ did it. And now in Romans 8 and verse 4, he says, And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. The requirements of the law have been met, not by us, not by our works and our goodness, but they have met in us. By faith in Christ, he met the requirements of the law, and now by faith in him, those requirements of the law are met in us. And now we can look at the, the Ten Commandments and not look at them as the frightening thing that they are apart from Christ. But now we look at the commandments and we say, Jesus kept those perfectly and now I seek to do that because of what Jesus has done for me. In a way, it's a, a case closed. You can think of a, somebody who has maybe been charged with a crime, then they are convicted and then they go and they serve their time and then it comes and says, case is now closed. Well, the case between us and God is, is closed in a way. It's closed. The, the conviction has come down. We are convicted. We are guilty. But Jesus has done the time. He took the punishment. And now the declaration is made. It's closed. It's a, it's a done deal. And as it says in Hebrews 10, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. No more payment that's needed. The law has been satisfied and now Jesus brings the word of salvation to us. He quotes here in Romans from Deuteronomy 30. And he quotes about how we don't ascend or descend to try to reach God and gain righteousness. Instead, Jesus has come to us. And Moses in, in Deuteronomy, thousands of years earlier, he's in a way prophesying, looking ahead to the coming of Christ. As he says, the word is near. Jesus is the word. He's the word that has come near and he brings the word of hope, of grace, of forgiveness, of pardon. And he brings that word to us because we can't get to God but he brings the word to us. In Deuteronomy 30, he says, Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. The word is very near you. It is too difficult for us to do it on our own. But it's not too difficult for us to put our faith in Christ. We can put our faith in the Lord because the word is near. In Isaiah 55, he, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Turn to the Lord, for he will freely pardon. We rejoice that pardon for our sin is near. It's in Christ. The good news, the grace, it's near. It has come to us in Christ. When Jesus began his public ministry in Mark 1, verse 15, he said, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. He's declaring that even in this 
place that was kind of looked down upon, the region of Galilee. So nothing important happens there. But Jesus was there saying, the kingdom of God has come here. The good news has come near. And he says that to us as well, the kingdom is near. Some years ago, the Oregon Symphony came to Astoria, little Astoria. This isn't a picture of that, but it was a similar situation. This is big symphony, the best symphony in the state of Oregon came 100 miles away to a high school gym and set up in the high school gym. I thought it was pretty neat that they were willing to come, these great musicians, and they were willing to come to some little place to folks who wouldn't have a chance to go to Portland and hear great music of the symphony there. But they brought the symphony to us in, in a little town. It's even more glorious and amazing that God has brought the, the symphony of salvation he has brought the song of hope. He has brought the song of his love and his grace, and he has brought it to us. We couldn't get to there to hear the symphony of heaven. We can't get there on our own, but he brings that good news, that song of salvation, he brings it to us. And now, by faith, we are saved from sin and shame. He wants them saved and he, he declares that if they believe if you receive this gift then you're saved he says you're rescued you're you're brought to a safe standing with god and and he saves us from facing the judgment we deserve and, and then he says that if those who trust him will will never be put to shame our sin is covered over our sin is cast away the shame of our sin is taken away in the garden of eden it says before they, they fell into sin, that Adam and Eve, the man and his wife, were both naked and they felt no shame. That's about a lot more than just the physical. It's about the spiritual condition that because sin hadn't come into the picture yet, they weren't ashamed to be before God. But then in the next chapter, it says that they, they disobeyed God and right away, they went to get fig leaves to cover themselves. And right away, they went to hide from God because they felt shame. And that has been the ongoing nature that we struggle with ever since. We have built into us this conscience that, that feels shame because of our sin. Jesus, as he hung on the cross, really, he was naked. That's how they did crucifixion. In a way, there's something symbolic. There's a, a message in that. That Jesus at the cross, he took our shame upon himself so that now our shame is taken away and now we can come before God. In Psalm 34, in verse 5, he says, Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. The shame is taken away by looking to him. We live in a world, though, in a culture that says, Oh, don't be ashamed. And it says that to people who don't know Christ. Instead, they have things, I think a big example of that is Pride Month. <laughs> and telling people, oh, don't feel ashamed. Instead, be proud. And say, no, don't be proud that you're disobeying God and you're going against the Lord. Don't be proud of it. Instead, there should be a shame. If you're not walking with the Lord and you're not trusting in Him, then there should be shame. Shame is not taken away by society telling you, oh, don't feel ashamed. <laughs> no, and there's 
sadly, there's many people who are thinking, well, society tells me I don't need to feel ashamed, I don't need forgiveness, so I, I won't seek forgiveness. The conscience is still eating away at them. And they're still miserable because the only one who takes away shame is the Lord. Shame is taken away not by society telling to be proud. Shame is taken away by repentance of sin and putting faith in Christ. It is he who can take away the shame. He alone. I remember when I was a kid, there was a, a track that was saying that when you die, there's going to be a video in heaven about your life. That really scared me for a time. <laughs> and then I came to really have the conviction and the trust that, no, when you're in Christ, the video of all the shameful things we've done, that video gets erased. And the video that is going to be shown is not the video of the shameful things that we've done. The video that is going to be shown is of the gracious things that God has done for us and the way God has cared for us. It's a video we can look forward to seeing because of his grace. He takes away the shame, and now we want everyone to be justified. Paul has this longing for his people to be justified, and then he expands it to everyone. He started his life thinking only the Jews had a chance. Only those who followed all the Jewish customs had a chance, but then he comes to see that no salvation is for all who believe and, are con and confess. He says there's no difference. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. He, he says that you need to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you will be saved. Confess with your mouth is a confession, a declaration that Jesus is Lord. Now, this is not meant to be some scary thing for those of us who are shy. <laughs> and he's not saying, well, you have to make a confession. Some have twisted this around a little bit, saying, well, the confession has to be in front of a whole church, and you've got to be somebody who speaks in front of a church group. And those who are shy are intimidated by this verse. No, <laughs> this isn't saying you've got to be somebody who does public speaking but it just means you're willing to declare, you're willing to say Jesus is Lord. He's the one who's over you. He's the one you submit to. He's the authority. And then believe in your heart means being sincere. That it's something that's real. It's not just words that are repeated, but they're truths that are believed. That Jesus did rise from the dead. In Acts 16, the jailer said, men, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Not some big, long, complicated 15-step program. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. We rejoice in the, the simplicity and the clarity of his way of salvation. And we rejoice it is for all people. In Matthew 15, we read of this, this woman, this Canaanite woman who had a daughter demon-possessed, had all kinds of strikes against her. And yet Jesus says of her, woman, you have great faith, your request is granted. He starts out kind of testing her, saying, well, hey, in a way he was saying, I'm supposed to be only going to the lost tribe of Israel. But she showed her faith, and he says, you have great faith. She had great faith that God had given to her, even though she was the wrong ethnic group. But it makes no difference. As John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him. 
Maybe somebody some years ago applied and got into West Point, into the Army Academy, and they, they got in there. It was quite a process to get in. You have to get the letter from a congressman. You have to get your have all your resume has to be just right and all this stuff together, all kinds of recommendations, and then just a few get chosen to go there. Paul, in his days before knowing Christ, he kind of thought that's how it was getting in the kingdom. You had to have the resume just right. You had to be of the right ethnic group. You had to keep all the rules. You had to do all these things. And then maybe you get into the kingdom of God. We rejoice it's not that way. It's not about having all the rules followed. It's not about having the right kind of resume. But there is one thing. In some ways, it's the easiest standard. In other ways, it's the hardest standard. The kingdom. Because you can't get there by any other way but trusting in what Christ did at the cross for you. But he says, for whoever believes in Christ, whoever trusts in what Jesus did at the cross, we're welcomed in. We long for all to be right with God. This chapter starts with Paul's desire for the Jews to be saved. And, and then in the verses that follow, he expresses how that desire is for everybody. In the verses that follow, the ones we read, he asks questions. How are they going to, to believe? How are they going to call in the one they haven't believed in? And then in verse 14, he says, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And then he says, how can they hear if someone doesn't preach to them? He's longing for them to hear the good news. And that's our longing as well. Because that's God's desire. In 1 Timothy 2 and in verse 3 and 4, he says, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants all to be saved. There isn't anybody we ever encounter that God says, Nope, no interest in them. No, everybody we ever interact with, we know God wants them to be saved. This message of good news, this hope of being right with God, it's a hope that he wants them to hear about as well. You get out on a gun range or archery range, key thing to know is what are you shooting at? In a way, it's for, for the church too. It's to know what it is, what are we aiming at? We're not just aiming at making people a little more moral. We're not just aiming at having better laws. That'd be a good thing. But that's not really our main aim. Our main aim isn't just being nice people and helping people out. That's good, and we do that. But the chief aim is we want people to get right with God. We want people saved and, and come into the kingdom. God has given us the good news. The good news of how people can get right with God. And he gives us the great privilege that we get to share that news with the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for that good news of how we get right with you. That good news that it's not by following a bunch of rules, trying to be good, hoping that maybe we do enough. But the good news that we get right with you. By faith in Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, rising again from the dead. Lord, thank you that we get to share that news with the world. In Jesus' name, amen.